All right, so this is the fifth lesson on biblical sexuality. We're calling this one the sacredness of nakedness. And if you hadn't observed, uh, our culture is getting more and more naked all the time. And not just the way we dress, but the way we view nakedness. So let us read a few things. God created sex, and we'll cover that more next week. The excitement and pleasure of the one flesh act was his idea and design. As such, he retains the right to assign its use and purpose, and we have forgotten that. Of course, the modern mantra today is, my body, my choice. And we always make the argument, oh, technically that's somebody else's body inside your body. How come you get to choose whether it lives or dies? That argument aside, God created sex, and it's his design, and we always do well to ask God, what did you intend this for, and what are your rules of engagement? It's like having an owner's manual. You can buy a piece of equipment, but if those who design it say, never use it for this, and you decide you want to try that, it could get you hurt really quick. Amen. I did see an argument recently that we've had basically 60 years now of birth control, which has revolutionized human reproduction. And so once the 60s created it and it took off like a wildfire, uh, our culture decided to experiment with it in every direction. And how has that done for us? It didn't free us up at all. What it did was bring about great new diseases great new family destruction, and we watch crime spike. So it's interesting when the Christian nation, America, cast off all restraint in the 60s because we could prevent pregnancies through birth control, we said, let's test the limits of sexuality, and all we've done is destroy our culture and our nation through broken homes, through ravaged diseases, through pedophilia, through assault, through rape. So it really goes to show you that um, we should probably get back to biblical mores, which is also, it's interesting to note that even a lot of the leftist philosophers are saying, you know what? Sex should be treated with a lot more respect. So there's something wonky going on when even the leftists who have pushed us towards the brink of apocalypse are circling back around and saying, maybe morality had something to it we should pay attention to. Novel concept. And then those who feared God and biblical families were like, we told you so, we told you so, we told you so, we told you so. As one might expect, the Bible reveals God's design and intention for marital intimacy. Many of the Old Testament laws reveal the sacredness of nudity and sex. The sacredness of nudity and sex. So I have this, this is my quote here that I want us to focus on because we'll be proving it the rest of this lesson. The Bible teaches the concept that nudity is a person's possession. As such, it is to be stewarded. The Bible teaches the concept that nudity is a person's possession, and as such, it should be stewarded. We know from other teachings in our doctrine that we will be judged by God over any stewardship he gives us, whether it's financial stewardship, physical health stewardship, career stewardship, your marriage is a stewardship, a position on the job or in the church is a stewardship. And if you and I don't learn how to biblically steward, our nudity and our sex life will be judged for that as well. From the beginning, the sanctity of the nude form was precious and exclusive. A lot of what we're teaching in this set of lessons has to do with the law of first mention, where we go back to the book of Genesis and we see God's original intention before the curse. 
before murder, before the law had to be enacted, because the law first mentions tells us when God introduces a subject, we get to see it in his original purest form. Genesis 2.25 says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So we see where nudity is the most and only shameless place between a man and his wife. Not a man and his husband, not a woman and his wife, not a girlfriend and her boyfriend or a boyfriend and his girlfriend. Between a man and his wife, that is where nudity is without shame. Apart from that, there should be shame. And I think you and I, it's in us, even when we go to the doctor and we understand there is biblical permission for nudity there, to them it's just an oil change. It's biology, it's just parts to them. There's still some shame in us, and that's perfectly acceptable. We all have our medical stories. There are a dime a dozen, and for, for the doctor, we're just patient number eight for the day. He looked at 17 parts like yours that day, can't remember one of them, and doesn't even care. I think I told you one time years ago, I had to go in for my annual physical, and it was time for the turn your head and cough part of the exam. Wasn't real excited about it, didn't see it coming, came out of nowhere. The doctor says, uh, go ahead and drop your pants. And then he turns around on his little thing and starts filling out his chart. So I, I dropped my pants, but not my underwear. Because he didn't say drop your underwear. He just said, I was like, what are we doing here? So he turns back around. He's like, and your underwear, son. <laughs> uh, well, it's a party now. So there was shame there. I don't, no, I don't want to do this. No. And it was nothing to him. It was like, pulls the glove off, turns back around, checks some things on his forms, and then he's like, all right, lay down. We're going to check your guts. It was nothing to him. It was still eventful to me to this day. <laughs> Sexual nudity, as opposed to medical nudity, is to be shared between husband and wife. It is a sacred gift exclusive to them alone, just like sex. Nudity is between husband and wife. It is sacred to them and them alone, just like sex is. A person uh, should only get completely naked for three things, bathing, <laughs> medical procedures, and sex. That's the reason we get naked. And, and we say that because even in colleges, there's a lot of nudity for the sake of nudity. I ran with a bunch of Christians who were half pagans in college and they had this annual event they called the run for the rectum. And it involved them getting undressed at the nursing building and streaking all the way down the quad here at Tech, running up on the steps of Derryberry, jumping up and down like Rocky, and then running back without getting arrested. Those were my Christian friends. I never participated in the run for the rectum, as they called it. Many of them are backslidden pigs today. But, you know, when you can't get sin out of your life in college, there's not much hope for you. When you go to college and you get dirty and you work clean, mm, that's a bad precedent to start. So we don't do streaking either. Amen. The allure of the nude form. Because nudity is generally reserved for sex, the sight of nudity can easily result in sexual arousal. Life teaches us that men are wired visually, whereas women are wired emotionally. This is acknowledged in the scripture. So Job 31, verse 1 in the New Living Translation says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. So I do find it interesting. There's no verses like that for women. 
Women, there's no scripture that says women have to make a covenant with their eyes. It's not how women are necessarily wired, but we understand men are. All you men get that. We have to work on that, constantly keeping a restraint on it. The Bible distinguishes between just looking and looking with lust. And it is possible to look without lust, but don't fool yourself. I would say the OBGYN doctor who's a man, I think he can look without lust because it's an oil change for him. It's just parts. He does it 20 times a day. Of the two sexes, men will have to contend more with restraining their eyes and the effect on their hearts. So keep that in mind. This is why we also teach modesty. We'll look at that here in a minute. That as Christian women, we ought to be concerned about our brothers in Christ. So we do teach modesty. Now, there is a big blowback among the feminists that are saying, you know, why do I have to change? Why can't you change? And I agree with both. Men do need to put restraint. But also, there's no sense in dressing like a whore if you're not one. And there's a verse that covers that here in a minute. Proverbs 6, 24 through 25. Uh, the word of God comes to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in your heart. Neither let her take thee with her eyelids. So here's a commandment. Don't lust after her beauty in your heart. I want to help people to maybe... Uh, understand um, how the heart works, you can look at someone and appreciate their beauty and there not be any lust there. You can look at your biological sister and say, sis, you look beautiful. Sis, you're gorgeous. And there not be a perversion or a lust or a desire for sex. A dad can look at his daughter and say, honey, you are beautiful. You're the most gorgeous young woman I've ever seen. And there not be any lust. At the same time, you can look at somebody who's dressed like a nun and be full of so much perversion, you're undressing her in your mind because you're that defiled. It is possible to look without lust in your heart. And that's why the proverb says, lust not after her beauty in your heart. It doesn't say that there is no beauty there. Even God, even God acknowledges some people are prettier than others. When the scriptures say she was more comely than others or he was more handsome than others, God's saying, yeah, that's a handsome guy. That's a beautiful woman. All those other folks were ugly. God is not a fool. He sees things as pretty and not so pretty. Thank God he loves us all the same. But some of us, he's hoping for the day of resurrection where we get a new body. And he's going to look at some of you and say, your parents did you no favors. I'm going to help you. I tried to warn your daddy not to chase your mama because it was going to produce an ugly you. Enter into the rest of God and the reward I have preserved for you. Looking with the eyes can activate lust in the heart, and it really depends on how you are attracted, and we regulate all of that. Uh, every culture perceives beauty differently. Every culture is attracted and activated sexually differently. I've been to Africa many, 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 many times. And to be honest with you, I have seen so many breasts in Africa on the front row of a church service while I'm preaching. Something that would absolutely grieve the Spirit of God here is nothing to nobody know how in Africa because the mama was breastfeeding and she happened to put one breast away and the other one fell out before she could switch babies over. And I'm preaching. I'm like, Lord, you just saw what I just saw. Uh, 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 like, you know what, huh? This is my first time to Uganda, I think. I was like, hmm, that just happened. What, what do we do here?
But they don't think anything of it, so I'm not going to think anything of it. It wasn't a sexual thing. It was feeding a baby. But I've also been to places in Africa where knees and thighs are very sexually arousing and breasts are nothing. So every culture is a little bit different. Some cultures are attracted by a big rear end. Other cultures are attracted by an athletic build. Everybody's different. And so it really does depend on how you've trained your heart. And if you've trained your heart that way, then you can regulate your heart to say, all right, that's attractive, Lord, but first looks free. After that, I'm in trouble. I'm going to put a guard over my heart and move on in life. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus said, I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So it's possible to look at a person without lusting after them. The looking isn't the problem. The lusting is the problem. We're talking about uh, the sacredness of the, of the human form. But we regulate it with our eyes and our heart. All three of the above scriptures address the man's heart as he looks upon a woman. And we do point out in light of all of our other teaching in these lessons that these are gendered, stereotypical behaviors. These verses address how men behave. There aren't any verses that necessarily point that this is how a woman deals with sin. Women don't necessarily, unless they're consumed of a spirit of lust, women don't start having porn vision in their mind when they see a man with muscles. They might say, oh my, those are muscles. And that's as far as it goes. What she does is goes, goes home and daydreams about the wedding, then skips to the first three ch children and their first, middle, and last names. That's what a woman does when she sees a man with muscles. She's not disrobing him and having sex with him in her mind, generally speaking. She's daydreaming about the first date, then the third date, then the engagement, and then the wedding and what she's going to wear at the wedding and then what they're going to name their three kids and the fourth one's on the way and we have two dogs and one's a Labradoodle, one's a Cocker Spaniel. And we live in this awesome little house. And that's after she just sees the guy with muscles. The man, on the other hand, is having sex. So we both are dysfunctional human sexes. And we need God's help to be clean and pure because the daydream of planning a family, that persnickety is just as wrong and lustful and lacks restraint as much as the guy that sees her and three minutes later he's disrobing her and making love to her in his mind because both lack restraint. Both are daydreams. Both haven't even bothered to ask God, God, who are they and do they know you? All right. Next page. Hopefully you can see what they're throwing up there. Violating nakedness. This is where we have to begin to look at this concept even more, that nakedness is a stewardship, and you and I are responsible for it. The scriptures address the privacy and sanctity of nakedness. Genesis recounts one story that changed the course of history. And this is a strange story, but we have to look at it in detail. Genesis 9, 22 and 23. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. So this is the story where Noah builds a vineyard. He makes wine. He gets drunk. We don't know if it's accidentally. We don't know if it's personally. But he passes out naked in his tent. Now, his tent, that's where he can be naked. I do think it's interesting. There aren't many human beings around. It's all family still. And yet we have a violation of nudity. He passes out in his tent. His brother goes in there and sees it. Now, I got to think God has mercy on Ham, and he realizes, hey, you know what? Uh, 
That first look was free. You just found your dad naked. Should have maybe found a blanket, covered him over. But what he does, what he does is not that. He goes and boasts in his dad's folly. So he goes and tells his brothers, hey, dad's in here naked. And there has to be more than just accidentally seeing your dad asleep naked. I have been around a lot of elderly people in nursing homes. I've been around folks in the hospital. I've seen parts that I was not meant to see and I did not want to see. Somebody shifts. I've, I've been with a lot of elderly women, been with them in hospitals and parts fall out of gowns and robes. And I've seen men parts I didn't want to see. And I say, Lord, you know, my heart's pure, not looking to see any of this. They're not mindful of it. I'm not mindful of it. It's a freebie and a wash. We go on. But something else happened here with Ham. He boasted in his father's nudity or his nakedness. So the other two brothers, Shem and Japheth, they took a garment and they laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And they fa their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. So the only person who saw Noah's nakedness was the son Ham. There was obviously something more going on here besides the accidental discovery of their father being naked and drunk. Sham and Japheth rejected their brother's behavior and honored their father by cautiously covering his nakedness. Now, we know this is a big deal because when Noah awakes, he knows what his son has done. How, do we, how does he know? The Bible doesn't reveal it, but the Bible does call Noah a prophet. Maybe it was the word of the Lord. Maybe it was the chatter among his family. There's been dishonor and disrespect here of the father's nudity. He wasn't flashing anything. It was partially his responsibility. He's the one that passed out drunk. But Ham's behavior resulted in his son, Canaan, being cursed. So Noah awakes. He knows what's done. And he says, cursed be Canaan for Ham. Now, this is a powerful, powerful statement. It's the first curse we see outside the garden. And one of the principles we might apply to this, and so you husbands and you men, listen to me carefully. Your affinity for nudity will curse and hurt your kids. Your delight in seeing nakedness that does not belong to you will curse your children. You'll, you'll give them as an inheritance your porn issue. You'll give them as their, your inheritance your lust issue. I, I'm developing a doctrine now that says I don't think a woman should marry any man with a porn addiction because a porn addiction is an addiction. I would not counsel a woman to marry a drunk or a cigarette smoker. Now, I'm not condemning anybody here still struggling with alcohol or cigarettes or vaping or pills, but how could I in good conscience stand and solemnize a wedding between one person who's clean and another person who's an addict? I would also never counsel a woman to marry a video game addict because you got to be free to lead that wife. Okay, just to be clear here, we're talking about biblical sexuality. Ham boasted in seeing his dad's nudity and it cursed his kid. Didn't even seem to hurt Ham, but it cursed his youngest boy. Canaan. This curse would allow for the descendants of Shem, they became the Israelites, to one day possess the land of Canaan, which is Israel today, all because of a violation of nakedness. So this again, we're in the book of Genesis. This is the law first mentions. This really begins to set a precedent for us for how nudity 
is valued by God, how we're to steward it, how we're to protect it, how we should put clothing on. I don't care what the woke, leftist, progressive whores have to say. Your body is a steward. It's a stewardship. You should clothe it, keep it uh, protected. When somebody comes over, put on something decent. Don't try to make them look at stuff that you're so proud of. <laughs> have you looked in the mirror lately? You may not be so proud of it. If you look in the mirror, you might say, hold on, let me go put on more than that. Let me just get me a good old Indian wigwam blanket. Let me just wrap up and you just look at my head. <laughs> Amen. So let's, let's, uh, let's be mindful. Modesty. The Bible requires modesty of God's ministers. God recognizes that not everyone that approaches the altar of God has a pure or renewed mind. Not everyone has a pure mind. Or renewed mind. So Exodus 20, 26 says, Do not approach my altar by going up steps. If you do, someone might look up under your clothing and see your nakedness. So God warned his priests in the book of Exodus, don't use steps to approach my altar, because if the people have gathered to the altar, and again, if we, I think we've seen the archaeological inscriptions on uh, the hieroglyphics we see that everybody wore these short kind of tunics that came to about mid-thigh or a little bit lower. And that's what the priests would have been wearing until they were given their priestly garments. So if they're trying to atone for God's people or make sacrifices, they're wearing short tunics. And they didn't have fruit of the loom back then or underwear. That's a modern invention. <laughs> so they would have been naked under there. And God says, look, don't do it. Somebody might accidentally see your nakedness. But I like how the responsibility is put on the minister. It's the minister's responsibility to prevent people from stumbling. Now, I wish, I think I say this, I wish some of our worship leaders, not in this church, because we, we do teach a higher standard, but I have been to churches where the worship team needed this. I was, my wife and I were in one church several years ago, and it had a high platform, which is not a problem, but... Actually, their piano was about where ours is, but it was aimed at the congregation. And the pretty little girl who sat on it sat with her legs facing us, and she was allowed to wear miniskirts. And there was no, like, cover on the front of it. So even during worship, you can see, thankfully, they had, like, the nightclub vibe, so it was really dark in there. But you could see right up in between her legs, should she open them or not sit with her ankles crossed. And I just wonder, where's the pastor? Where's the excellence? Where's the stewardship? Why do we have the pretty girl on the piano dressed in a, sh a skirt that short? Put her on the piano. Put her in something better. Be mindful. I don't know what the pastor was thinking other than he wasn't. But that would have violated this scripture here. God placed the responsibility of modesty upon the priest. They were to take care not to allow for someone to spy their nakedness. This is a far cry from today's selfish attitude of your eyes, your problem. The Lord even took the modesty mandate one step further by commanding special clothing to be worn. Exodus 28 says, And thou shalt make the priests linen breeches, or we'd say undershorts, to cover their nakedness from the loins even unto the thighs shall they reach, that they bear not inequity and die. So this says, If their nudity is seen, I will kill them. 
Now you can tell we're under grace because half of today's modern worship teams would be dead. They'd turn into pillar assaults with a microphone in their hand because of the way they dress and flash and gyrate. and Even the men, a lot of the new modern stuff, the, the really popular stuff, the stuff that's getting all the doves and crosses over and gets the Grammys, those guys will dance around in T-shirts or tank tops showing off their muscles and their tattoos leading a song about gyra. Wink, wink. Like, you're not a worship leader. You're a performer. And this song is an anointed. You're a pervert. Where, where's the reverence for God? Where's the reverence for your sacredness? The Lord extended his priestly modesty requirements by requiring linen breeches be worn for the sole purpose of covering their nakedness. This verse may need to be read to many worship teams today. How we dress reveals a lot about our heart. How you present yourself, especially in the house of God, reveals who you think about. And we're all for dressing up. You guys are nicely dressed this morning, but there's a place where the, 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 the fancy dress becomes a show. But there's also a place where the dress down, which is really popular right now, becomes pure carnal sensuality and irresponsibility. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. And don't become a, a showman trying to show off your muscles, your biceps, your ski slopes, all those lunges you do. Don't, don't be a showman. We ought to be able to leave something to the imagination. Proverbs 7, verse 10 says, The woman approached him, that is the naive young man, seductively dressed and sly of heart. And the King James says, And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. The Bible does not call this woman a harlot. It simply says she dressed like one. You, if you're not a harlot, don't dress like one. Don't do your eyes up like one. Don't uh, shake your moneymaker like one. Be modest. I feel so old school talking this way. But then again, my job is to give you the commandments of God. You may not be a whore, but don't give any reason to doubt. And again, we're not, we're not little house on the prairie. We don't need you to wear a bonnet. Boots that come up to your calf and a dress that comes down to your heel. We can be modest. We can be fashionable. We can be beautiful and still leave something to the imagination. And if you have to show off your muscles, you are grossly insecure. Amen. And if we can see your muscles through your clothing, it's time to get bigger clothing or you to lose weight one. It simply says she dressed like when harlots dress to reveal and entice. Their dress dishonors the sanctity of their nakedness and publicly promotes the intimacy of their nakedness. The New Testament affirms modesty. So let's see what the New Testament says. 1 Timothy 2 says, And I want women to be modest, modest and well-arranged in their appearance. It is the Greek word cosmios, modest, organized in their appearance. Let's pause on that. Because cosmos doesn't just mean modest as we understand. It also means organized. So you should come to church 
with your apparel organized. What that means is your hair doesn't look like a guinea pig's rat's nest. Right? We shouldn't look like, if you've ever seen the original Mad Max, we shouldn't look like Banshee Boy from Mad Max. <laughs> uh, they call him, I think his official term is feral kid. And you'd have to go watch that it's Australian classic to appreciate it. But some of you are old enough, you caught Mad Max and Mel Gibson's earliest movies. And his kid, his hair would just look like he'd slept in a, a, a dog's den underground, like he slept with dingoes or something. You shouldn't come to church and you look like a feral cat. Your apparel comes in. Uh, this morning, Lydia comes out. She's 11. Daddy, do I look good? Sweetie, you look awesome. But you haven't folded that sweater in weeks, have you? Yes, I have. I said, where? In a ball under your bed? And it's just the sweater, all this wrinkles. I said, it's time for Daddy to teach you how to steam a sweater. Go get me a hanger, and I'll get the steamer ready. So we had to steam the wrinkles out of it. That's cosmios. You don't look homeless. If you're homeless, it's okay to look homeless. But if you're not homeless, you shouldn't look homeless. Part of honoring God is even coming and presenting your very best to him. I don't care if your very best is flip-flops and a pair of jeans that only has one hole in the knees. I don't, some of you, let me hit on my little trope again. I don't understand why you come to the house of God with these ratty jeans. I get it's trendy, and I get you want to be popular and liked by people who don't like you. But if you come to the house of God, come up. I don't care about your trendy jeans for out there in the world, but don't bring them to the house of God. Wear something better. I don't care if they're $500. They look like rat's holes. Present something better to the house of God because this is all about worship. This ought to be the highest point of our whole week. And I'm not going to let you bring it down because you're too lazy to walk with God. This is the big thing I have against the carnal seeker church, which is so dumbed down, dressed down, numbed down, that people don't even know this is God we're going to go see. I don't care what your best is. I don't care how maybe low it is compared to the lawyer in town, but let it be your best. Even the pair of Liberty overalls that is the least faded. If that's your best, God receives that as a priestly robe. Even if your, your dress shoes are the brand new pair of ropers you just got, and that's your Liberty overalls and the Wrangler shirt, and that's your best, and that's how you want to honor God, then bring it, and God will honor it. But if you got better and you present less, so modesty, well arranged in their appearance, they should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Uh, Paul's not against that. I'm not against it, but don't do it to draw attention to yourself. We don't come to church with our best to draw attention to ourselves. We come to church with our best as an offering to God. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things that they do. That's how, that's how we do it. Modesty is a praiseworthy quality, especially in the house of God. What is modest apparel in light of our subject? It's clothing that leaves a lot to the imagination. True, a degenerate mind can be aroused by ankle porn. I learned that term in Bible school when they talked about the old holiness people whose women still dress like Aunt B or uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder. And uh, 
So one of my Bible school professors, he said, you know, some of these old-fashioned hard-line Pentecostals, you know, they get aroused by ankle porn. I'd never heard the term before. So that's when the lady's dress hikes up just a little bit. You can see her ankles and, oh, Nelly, and some pretty ankles. There are those people that are that weird. (laughs) But men and women must do their best not to cause their fellow Christians to stumble. Nothing wrong with modesty. Nothing wrong with modesty. Folks that don't want it, they're really insecure. They want the attention their daddies never gave them. So the intimacy of nakedness. Let's move on to this next section. There are numerous references to nakedness in the law for obvious reasons. Quote, to uncover their nakedness was a Hebrewism for sexual intercourse. In the Torah, God forbade his people from uncovering the nakedness of their near kin. I do think it's interesting that the Hebrew literally says uncover their nakedness and it uses the possessive tense. It is their nakedness. You and I don't have a right to uncover anybody's nakedness, but our husband or wife. Now, if you are, if you have children, you uncover their nakedness to bathe them and to help dress them. And there's an innocency there. And if there isn't an innocency there, you're a pervert and a pedophile. It's one of the reasons we don't let men change diapers and we don't let men babysit around here. You don't uncover the nakedness of your father or your mother. You don't uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, your stepmom, for it is your father's nakedness. You don't uncover the nakedness of your sister or your granddaughter. It's thine own nakedness. So even your granddaughter's nakedness is yours because that's your grandchild. It talks about authority. You don't uncover the nakedness of your half-sister the aunt on either side, the uncle's wife, your daughter-in-law. And I told you last week, I knew a pastor, not personally. I have friends who know him personally, have ministered for him. I know a, a minister less than 10 years ago. His wife died and he started an affair with his daughter-in-law and married his own daughter-in-law. That's wicked and vile. He went on to embezzle money and is in jail the last time I heard. You don't uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law or your brother's wife, a woman and her daughter and her granddaughter. Can you imagine some pervert wanting to have sex with three generations in one family? Now we make the point, God gave laws to address issues because apparently the Israelites had learned to do some of this living in the world. So the laws were given to make Israel different than everybody in the surrounding area at the time. But you, the Egyptians, the Amalekites, the Moabites weren't the only ones to invent this stuff. You don't uncover the nakedness of your wife's sister. You don't uncover the nakedness of a woman menstruating. Habakkuk 2.15 uses the same concept to address date rape. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunk also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. So let me address kind of this new Marxist little hashtag Me Too movement. Everybody says college date rape is wrong, and it is. But everybody wants to defend drinking and alcohol and frat parties. And you can't have it both ways. Date rape occurs around alcohol. Sexual deviancy mostly revolves around alcohol. And so I'm all for pounding the table 
against sexual perversion, but let's pound the table around drunkenness and alcohol and chemical dependency. Our town is up in arms over the drag show that happened last week at a bar, but our town's not up in arms over all the bars we have. I'm sorry, little country conservative Christians, but you're hypocrites. Woe unto those that get their neighbor drunk so they can look on their nakedness. The Old Testament established the concept of marital unity, building upon the Genesaic rule that the two shall become one flesh. A wife's body and nakedness is referred to as her husband's nakedness. To have sex with a man's wife is to see his nakedness. So this is confirmed in the New Testament. My wife, her nakedness is mine. Just like my children's nakedness is mine, according to the Old Testament. So I am to be a defender of both. It's why we've also taught my daughters, they bring what they wear to us. Daddy, does this look okay? My children do that every Sunday. Daddy, does this look okay? Daddy, can I wear this? Now, now that the girls are shooting up like bean poles, Daddy, is this skirt too short? I know it wasn't last month, but it feels like it's getting too short. I think it's okay, sweetie, but probably next month it may be too short. Or we say, it is a little too short, just go throw on some leotards. Yeah. I will say this, as I often say, some of you ladies even in here right now, your dresses are often fine when you stand up, but when you sit down, I can see your upper thigh while I preach. I want you to be self-conscious of that. You don't mean anything by it. You're just clueless. Just be modest. I don't have a lust issue. I don't want you. I'm not attracted to you. I got a beautiful wife. We're blessed. But I also worry about my guest ministers. I worry about our worship team. So how about practice sitting down in a chair at home? I know if it's, you know, three inches above your knees and you're kind of a bigger lady, it doesn't feel like it touches anything. And so you think it's okay, but you sit down and it comes up to like right below your butt cheek, which is some of you. I can't preach it and not preach it at you. You're the ones that are here. It's not like Greg wears a short skirt and I have to look up it all the time. Thank you, Greg, for being a man. Everybody's like, oh, note to self, I'm going to be wearing pants for a while. All right. To have sex with a man's wife is to see his nakedness because his wife's body is his own and vice versa. God sees them as one flesh. To show off your body is to show off what belongs to your spouse. Paul affirmed the same concept in 1 Corinthians 7, 3, New Living Translation. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. And so we don't get to uh, claim this, that, or the other. Uh, we say, well, I can do what I want to. Nope, you can't. You don't get to do what you want to. Nakedness is reserved for the sanctity and the beauty of marriage. We honor our God by honoring our bodies and their nude form. So this then, then arises the question, okay, what about the beach or the pool? And this is always a good question because we do wrestle with this. There seems to be... Uh, <laughs> I, I, we go to the beach every year. I have my whole life. Uh, we have pool parties here. We always wear t-shirts to try to be modest. And, and I get it. There seems to be some kind of heart adjustment that takes place 
that when you're in a public forum where people are at the beach, it's like we're all at the beach together. And I wrestle with this honestly myself. I tell my wife when we go to the beach, we hang out with the kids. It's also one of the reasons we won't vacation with anybody because these are strangers. They don't know who we are. We don't know who they are. But I say, honey, you know, I wrestle with something here because right now everybody out here is in their underwear. And if we did beach church, we'd be doing church in our underwear. And there's a cultural shift that seems to take place in a person's heart. It may be similar to seeing breasts in Africa because of breastfeeding or being among the Indians in South Africa. The women always wear these beautiful saris and they show about this much midriff. You would never come in here showing this much stomach. They do it. Don't think anything of it. Doesn't grieve God. Doesn't mess with the men. It's just their thing. But now in South Africa, they refuse to let the women wear nose studs because it shows what demon they worshiped under Hinduism. But in our modern day, every worship girl has a nose stud. And I find it highly offensive and disgusting. One time, a couple years ago, I was out in the ocean with my kids playing with them. And as I turn around to come back, my wife is hugging a man at the beach and then turning around, hugging this woman in a bikini at the beach. And my wife's wearing a swimsuit and like a little tankini. And I'm just sitting here going, we're hugging each other in our underwear at the beach. What are we, what are we doing? I don't even know what to make of this. It's just so weird. So I just walk up and, you know, I got my shirt off. And so come to find out my wife had witnessed to this lady, found out they were pastors. She was about to go chemotherapy. So she laid hands on them to pray for them. They're all crying. And we have a bunch of naked preachers hugging on each other at the beach. And God's honored and anointing is there to heal people. And he's a pastor and she's the worship leader. And, and he's kind of a middle-aged fellow, big gut, but there's my wife in her swimsuit hugging on a naked man's top. And, and I just think, I don't, I don't even know what to do with this. Just scroll this away, process it later. Let's go back to building a sandcastle. But I'm hoping we're catching the heart of it because I think we get it. You go to the beach, everybody's in the swimsuit. Nobody cares. You even people watch and it, it's just like, oh, that's fat, that's skinny. That guy works out. She's a runner. That woman just, okay. How are you self-conscious in public, but not at the beach? I don't know if I've helped or muddied waters this morning. What follows is the city of Cookville's Tennessee code of ordinances concerning sexually oriented businesses. Of interest is the city's observation that when sexual perversion is marketed, it brings about societal decay. So I want to read this first two points. This is our city of Cookville Code of Ordinances, Title IX, Chapter 8, Sexually Oriented Businesses. Nine, Section 801, Purpose, Findings, and Rationale. Purpose, it is the purpose of this chapter to regulate sexually oriented businesses in order to promote the health, safety, and general welfare of the citizens of the city and to establish reasonable and uniform regulations to prevent the deleterious secondary effects of sexually oriented businesses within the city. So right there in the first sentence it says, we recognize that sexual perversion brings about societal degradation. Deleterious means detrimental, breakdown. The provisions of this chapter have neither the purpose nor effect of imposing a limitation or restriction on the content or reasonable access to any communicative materials, including sexually oriented materials. Similarly, 
It is neither the intent nor effect of this chapter to restrict, restrict or deny access by adults to sexually oriented materials protected by the First Amendment or to deny access by the distributors and exhibitors of sexually oriented entertainment to their intended market. Neither is it the intent nor effect of this chapter to condone or legitimize the distribution of obscene material. So you see the city trying to straddle the fence or stay in between the ditches. We're not trying to limit, but we're not condoning. So the findings and rationale based on the evidence of the adverse secondary effects of adult uses presented in hearings and in reports made available to the city council on findings, interpretation, and narrow construction incorporating the city cases. So it goes through all this case precedent that basically proves that sexual perversion brings about societal degradation. Look at all those cases. Those are all lawsuits. Many of them are Supreme Court cases. So based on all of that, it looks like we've somehow cut some stuff off. Oh, no, it keeps going there. That's a lot of case precedent. Section A says, sexually oriented businesses, that is, businesses that reject the sacredness of nakedness, porn shops, sex shops, drag shows, sexually oriented businesses as a category of commercial uses are associated with a wide variety of adverse secondary effects, including, but not limited to, personal and property crimes. So when you don't honor the sacredness of nudity, it produces crop property crimes. Prostitution, potential spread of disease, lewdness, public indecency, obscenity, illicit drug use and drug trafficking, negative impacts on surrounding properties. Hannah's favorite is urban blight litter, and sexual assault and exploitation. Does anything in that list sound positive? But the city of Cookville, borrowing this from the state of Tennessee, borrowing this from case law across the nation, acknowledges that when society disregards the sacredness of nakedness, as I'm calling it, this is the effect. And do you know why this is the effect? You do. Because it's sin and demonic. And anywhere sin and demonism is promoted, Demons abound, and demons bring darkness. It's fascinating. Our city, in its code of ordinances, condemns sexually perverse activities and recognizes its detrimental effects on a society. We've given you the reason why with all the scriptures, but I want you to see how it's burping up in statutes and laws. A lot of this language, because we looked at one case study from the Supreme Court, a lot of this language is from that case from the Supreme Court in 1986 or 87. Each of the foregoing negative secondary effects constitutes a harm. Wait, so everything that sexually oriented businesses bring about is a harm to the city? <laughs> the city recognizes this as harmful constitutes a harm which the city has a substantial government interest in preventing and or abating. This substantial government interest in preventing secondary effects, which is the city's rationale for this chapter, exists independent of any comparative analysis between sexually oriented and non-sexually oriented businesses. Additionally, the city's interest in regulating sexually oriented businesses extends to preventing future secondary effects of the uh, either current or future sexually oriented businesses that may locate in the city. The city finds that the cases and documentation relied on in this chapter are reasonably believed to be relevant to said secondary effects. And so it goes on. So as a final word 
on nudity. The gathering demoniac was driven of devils to cut himself, dwell among the tombs, and run around naked. Someone becomes the most fully possessed person in the New Testament, and the adverse effect, one of the side effects is nakedness. Just run around naked. Demons cause people to hurt themselves, live among the dead, and disrespect their bodies. As parents, you should teach your daughters to have more respect for themselves. One of my friends, his daughter was 13. I was there when the conversation took place. I was uncomfortable. She was 13. She had developed pretty quickly. She came out with a very tight outfit. And he said, sweetie, can I make an observation? Yeah, daddy. You have big boobs. Yes, daddy. He said, you need to cover them up more. Why? Because boys like big boobs and you have them. So cover them up better, sweetie, before you leave my house today. I don't know where a 13-year-old was going, but she was allowed to go somewhere. Maybe have those kind of talks with your children. Let them understand that the world is not as innocent as you had hoped to raise them. Once that man was delivered, he was found clothed. That's the first thing the Bible says of him. He was clothed, seated, and in his right mind. Amen.